0: verse 11. Um, I want to thank uh, the elders for uh, allowing me to bring the word to you today. Um, I've actually had this sermon prepared since July, um, and I was warned against preaching today in case something disastrous might happen, but uh, if so, I think we'll all be okay. Um, let's go ahead and read the passage here in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11. I'll be reading, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for purchasing us. I thank you for this plan that you have had in eternity past to make a one man for yourself, one person through Christ. We thank you for bringing us who were far off near to you. I pray that the words I speak today that are worth hearing, that are your words will stick and that those that aren't will fall away. Father, we trust you and we thank you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to open our hearts to teach us today name, amen. In Ephesians, Paul paints a beautiful portrait of how the church should live. Beginning with doxology, addressing doctrine, and ending in devotion, Paul teaches the Ephesian church about the riches they have in Christ and how they ought to live because of that. If you read Paul's epistles and you're really familiar with them, you begin breaking down his arguments. This is pretty typical. In the first part of the epistle, he usually teaches on some theological truth and then spends the rest of the epistle uh, applying that truth and teaching people how they ought to live in Christ. Often this begins and ends in doxology in praise of God. For example, in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul gives thanks for the unity found in Christ and then addresses how the church is to be unified through its worship and operations. In Philippians, Paul discusses what it means to be unified with Christ and launches into a discussion, an encouragement of the church at Philippi to rejoice in all circumstances and endure their suffering just as Christ did. In fancy theology language, we say that orthodoxy affects and leads to orthopraxy. Um, But I'll say it the way Scott says it. What is true changes what we do. Of all of Paul's epistles, Ephesians is the most beautiful example of this, of how what is true changes what we do. If you start in chapter 1 in this huge run-on sentence, praising God for all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ and are being sealed with the Spirit, Paul writes a letter teaching the Ephesian church that they need to be unified as one body of Christ because Christ unified them to God, destroying the dividing wall between the Jews and Gentiles, making only one man. So today we'll be looking at what this means when Paul says that we are God's household and how his emphasis actually on the Trinity here teaches us about who we are as the church and thus who we are to be as the church. We don't really always spend a lot of time talking about the Trinity. I think we all are familiar with, if you've been in church a while, you've heard of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I don't know if up until recently, I even thought that that affected my day-to-day life as a Christian. I mean, I, I understand like there's this three-in-one, and I see that in Scripture, but does that really have any bearing on my life? We don't talk a lot about it, uh, maybe in some circles you do, but it's amazing when you start looking for it that you see the Trinity everywhere. Um, and even in the Old Testament, if, if you're reading closely um, that God presents himself in this way and reveals himself. And the question that kind of comes to me is like, why? I'm like, do we even need to know that? Like, what's the big deal? Um, And that's kind of a question I want to answer today and to, to kind of bring this big theology down, so to speak, because it's not just for the theologians and seminarians and people who get on Facebook and get into big conversations and arguments about stuff. It's important for the church as a whole. Paul's words here in Ephesians, as we know, are breathed out by God. So every word, and the order even in which these words are written, are important. Beginning with the third verse, actually, if you go back to chapter 1, Paul talks about the Trinity nine times in only six chapters, mentioning Father, Son, and Spirit. In our passage here in Ephesians 2, Paul is actually very heavy-handed in making sure that the Ephesian church, and indeed the church for all time, understands the importance of the Trinity in regards to the household of God. It's important to him, and we can see that because we know that his words are inspired. It's important to God, and he wants us to understand this. So that Paul describes here the church as a household, as a dwelling place within a Trinitarian formulation teaches us three things about the church. These are in your notes. If you didn't grab a note, you can write these down. And uh, Here's the three things we'll be looking at today. First, that we are to live in unity and second, that our lives should be marked by holiness, and third, that we can live in empowerment to complete the mission of the church on earth. The church and the Christians who comprise it should be unified just in the same way that we understand that the Trinity is one. And this is of paramount importance in our passage here, and indeed in all of Scripture, um, in John 17, Jesus is praying in what we call the high priestly prayer, the last meal and prayer he'll, he'll have with his disciples before the cross. In verse 21, he actually prays, not just for his disciples there, but for the church of all time, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I don't know about you, but I don't always feel that close to y'all. I'll be honest. I I tend to want to do things on my own. I confess that I can be tempted toward divisiveness. I'm tempted toward being a loner, towards trying to accomplish the will of God on my own. But Jesus prayed that we might be one, just as he and the Father are one. So Where do we see this in the text here, and how is this accomplished? What does that even mean for us? In verse 19, we see that Paul says that we are the household of God. And and this is maybe something we, we take for granted and we just overlook and assume. But the church as the household of God is amazing. In verse 18, Paul says that we are the household of God through Christ and that we have access to the Father in one spirit. This this Trinitarian formula, as as I call it, um, teaches us three things here. First, it teaches us that God has adopted us into his family. He certainly creator of the universe. He's certainly our Lord and our King, but he is first and foremost our Father. Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says that God sent forth his Son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons and become heirs of the promise of redemption. Second, it teaches us that through the death of Christ, our brother, our trespasses are forgiven and through Christ's resurrection, that we are justified before God. Third, the Spirit then bears witness. He announces to the Father, He announces to the household, and to our very own hearts and spirits that we are sons of God. And through the Spirit, God places His seal upon us, saying that we are indeed His. Have you really thought about how amazing that actually is, that we have been adopted by God, that we are his sons, that we receive every inheritance through Christ, that every blessing in Christ that Paul describes in Ephesians 1 is ours in him? I was thinking about this as I was trying to fall asleep last night. Um... And I was thinking about adoption. And I was thinking, you know, you're watching Annie. Of course Daddy Warblocks would want to adopt Annie. I mean, she's got those freckles and that cute curly red hair. And, like, Annie's great. But who wants to adopt a meth addict? Who wants to adopt a sex addict? Who wants to adopt a murderer or a thief? Who wants to adopt one of us who hates our brother. Who wants to adopt the Apostle Paul who dragged the church out to kill them? Men and women. Who wants to adopt the worst of sinners, James Thigpen? Our father does. And let me tell you this. You may be saying, you know, how can I be sure? I'm pretty bad. I, you know, I've been, I've confessed, I've, I've been baptized, but how can I be so sure Has God not kicked me out of the house for all the wrong that I've done? Certainly in our deepest, darkest times when it seems that nothing is going right, when it seems that the sin has conquered, the question lingers in our hearts, am I actually his? Let me assure you that yes, you are adopted, and once you are adopted, you are never kicked out of the house. Once a son always a son. And how do I know this? I know it from this scripture because of what we know of the Trinity, that the Father, through Christ and by the Spirit, has placed his steadfast love on us, and that steadfast love endures forever. In his commentary on this passage, Brian Chappell notes that the root word that actually forms household here is the same root word that forms the words describing the building of God's house. Built in verse 20, structure in verse 21, built together, dwelling, all of these architectural words are based on the same root word for household. So in Paul's mind, led by the inspiration of God, as he's writing about the church, the family, the household of God, he naturally thinks about the firmness the soundness of that relationship. Just as a well-constructed building, we know it's going to stand up and stay together. So is our eternal relationship with the Father sound. And additionally, we see not only the soundness of our relationship with God and the importance of that, but the solidarity of our relationship with each other in the church. In verse 21, Paul speaks of us being joined Together. And in verse 22, being built together. And as each brick in a structure depends on all the other bricks around it to stand firm, so do we depend on each other. This is why Jesus prayed for us to be one, and why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4 3 to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This unity was so important that Christ purchased it with his blood. Earlier in Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 18, we saw that it was the blood of Christ that brought us Gentiles near. It was the blood of Christ that made Jew and Gentile one man destroying the dividing wall of hostility and reconciling us both to God. If there is any division or disunity among us, any quarreling or dissension. This is set against the work of Christ on the cross. It is set against the will of God. It causes the body of Christ to suffer and not just our local church here, but the entire body of Christ. And don't Is the body of Christ not suffering enough as it is that we should hate each other or think evil thoughts of our brother? We need to and we can repent of these divisions. If we have grudges, if there is any sin, we need to repent and pursue peace in the spirit. Because, you see, this unity is already purchased. It is a fact. And we as the church are being built up together by the work of the Spirit. Therefore, our living in unity and our pursuing the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is simply being already who we are in Christ. That leads me to the second point we'll look at, holiness. In verse 21, Paul says that we are growing together into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple... And its predecessor, the tabernacle, served the purpose of being God's seat of holiness on earth. It is where his presence actually dwelt among his people. Now, if we're being really good biblical scholars and we're thinking about this word dwelt, um, it should remind us of John 1. In John 1.14, the apostle says that the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. In Greek, that word actually can mean tabernacled. So Jesus, in his flesh, became the tabernacle. As he says later in John, he became the temple of God on earth. So what is Paul saying here? You, church, are being built into the temple of God on earth, and you are, are being built into God's seat of holiness on earth so that we have within us, even as the Spirit filled the temple in the dedication in 2 Chronicles, that the very same fullness of God that was pleased to dwell in Christ can dwell in us. Paul makes this explicitly clear in chapter 3, verse 19, by praying that we, the church, would be filled... With all the fullness of God. Because of this truth, what lives then should we live? Are we living in such a way that the fullness of God would dwell in us? Are we striving for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Now, before you come and drag me out of the pulpit for seeming to say that we need to be perfectly holy for God to dwell in us. I am certain, just as I just finished preaching, that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has already imputed, that is, given and filled us with his righteousness and his holiness. And we praise God for that. But as John Calvin noted, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith that justifies is never alone. To be straightforward, if you have put your faith, holy in Christ for salvation, you will live like it. And if you're not living like it, repent and continue to trust Jesus. Because by the Father's decree and the Son's death and the Spirit's work in us, holiness is not optional. Because what is true changes what we do. We are, by the grace of God, through the Spirit, by the finished work of Christ, being built into the temple of God, and God will do it. Let us strive then with Paul, with all the energy of Christ, to live lives of holiness. And this is exactly where Paul goes through the rest of Ephesians. Let's look at chapter 4 and verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So we see here that after discussing the lives they once lived and the work of Christ, Paul immediately addresses what sort of lives they ought to live. He'll finish this section in verses 25 through 32 by addressing how we as Christians ought to treat each other. Throughout chapters 5 and 6, Paul discusses our relationships together and how to live in holiness in marriage, in the church, at work. All of this is a result of our being built into a holy temple for the Lord. But the purpose of pursuing holiness is not just some end in itself to be some righteous Pharisee that can stand up here and Act sinless, and, and you can see how great I am for fasting, not really, but just as the temple just as the temple was cleansed on the day of atonement, every piece sprinkled with blood by the priest, so are we sprinkled with the blood of Christ, not for simple holiness' sake, but because the Lord desires his bride, the church, to be without spot or blemish, and he will do it. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, and 27, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the end, really, Our pursuing holiness is simply being who we already are, who we already were made to be by the Father in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Our holiness, in the end, is the work of God alone accomplished in our pursuit of him to the praise of his glorious grace alone. And part of this, making the church spotless, sanctifying her, the church as his bride, part of this is broadening the church. This is the third point. Just as this passage teaches us about unity and holiness, it teaches us about our mission and empowers us through the work of the Trinity to join with God in his work on earth. Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 6. I was really thankful for Lee this morning, um, I sent him that song at like 8 a.m. I was like, oh, this would be the perfect song. It's too bad we forgot it. And then, of course, he learned it. But Ephesians 6, and you'll recognize this, verses 10, Paul finishes contemplating in this letter what it means for the church to be God's household. He turns his attention then from inward to the church to outward and encourage us to, encourages us And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It would be easy to just think of the church as a household and temple that just operates for itself and by itself. And maybe it's true sometimes that we operate this way and we get a little comfortable with our discipleship programs and Bible classes. We come to worship on the Lord's Day. We meet with our study groups. We may even have someone over for dinner that week. And after all this, sometimes I feel pretty good about myself. And while those things are good things that we should do as the household and temple of God being built together, that is not the entire mission of the church. As Scott says, good theology always starts in Genesis. And if you look back in Genesis 1, through 28, as God creates man, what is it that he tells him to do as he makes him in his image? He says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Just as this multiplication and subduing was God's primary edict for his people on earth in Eden, which is actually the first temple of God as he dwelt there with his people, so is his edict the same now for his temple on earth, the church, to multiply and have dominion over the earth. Maybe you're thinking, James, you sound really crazy right now. I don't even know where you're going with this. And I understand that maybe this language has been twisted before in the past. So I want to be clear that the church's dominion is not of a physical nature. As Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The land promise that God made in Genesis 12 to Abraham, which is to us as his offspring, does not find its final fulfillment in the church crusading down to Jerusalem and taking the Temple Mount back. It doesn't come about by us building a huge building. It doesn't come about by us hoarding cash in our treasury. The dominion edict given to the church is found in the Great Commission. Under Jesus' authority, we go and we make disciples. And in this way, wage war against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. So how is this accomplished? In the verses we just read, Paul equips us with the spiritual armor provided to God's people. Truth, righteousness, faith, the word of God, the gospel of peace, salvation, and prayer. What is the purpose of this armor? What's the purpose of any armor? It's for those who fight. It's not given to those who are in the feasting hall sitting there. It's not given us to us in the Lord's army to sit around and bask in our salvation and pat ourselves on the back. The armor of God is given to us so that we may accomplish his purpose of dominion over the spiritual forces by conquering the world with his good news. The church should not be sealed behind the gates waiting for the enemy to storm. We are called to go out. We are called to take dominion over the world through the Great Commission. But this dominion in its finality, in the end of it, it's not really even the churches. It is the Lord's. Paul says in Ephesians one twenty one that God placed Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And because of Christ's work and the atonement that we have being given the Spirit, Paul concludes this statement in, one, in chapter 122 and 23 by saying that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's meaning here is that we, we who have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, also take part in his dominion. This is not a call. This is not to come in and I've got to preach a really hard sermon today and get these guys going. This is an encouragement because the success of the Great Commission does not simply rest on our, soul, on our shoulders. It doesn't rest on us having the perfect outreach program or even the outreach program working or our, our discipleship groups. Or It depends not on our own strength or power, but on the power of the Spirit within us. Because what a burden would it be for us to, God says, go, and then just leaves us here. But he has sent us the helper. He has sent us his spirit. And we are not alone. We are not without hope. Indeed, our hope has already been accomplished by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Just as the salvation of our souls and our bodies have already, has already been accomplished, so is the Great Commission. Because Christ has conquered. He has risen from the dead. And so let us count it a blessing to participate in this work that he has prepared for us. Let us join him in his Trinitarian work of bringing people from all tribes, nations, and tongues to himself. Indeed, the Father has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim him and his excellency. Christ lived, died, and was raised so that through knowledge of him, We may have everything we need for life and godliness. It is through his resurrection that we are given his spirit, our comforter, the spirit who regenerates us, the spirit who breathes new life into us, applying the righteousness of Christ to us, the spirit who leads us, the church, to the truth found in the word and who works in us to increase the borders of the church, to multiply the family, constantly building the household of God. The Trinity is at work in this world. And it is at work in this world through the household and temple of God. Through us. What a blessing that is. And what praise and devotion and worship this work should lead us to. Let us humbly, prayerfully and reliant on the Spirit's power, join God in this. It's my hope that all of us, through perseverance, prayer, through the Word, will come to know and appreciate the amazing implications of the Trinity. I know sometimes this theological language, I mean, I nerd out about it. I love this stuff. And some people, they don't. That, you know, that's okay but I do pray that we all would see the amazing implications of God's revealing himself in this way to us. And I pray with Paul as he prayed in Ephesians three sixteen, that the Father may grant us to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So let me give you some applications to take home. First, as the household of God, being unified just as the Trinity is, our primary responsibility is love. First, love for God, and second, for our brothers in all circumstances. This love, of course, is not just limited to us among the church here at Redeemer, but just as God's love between Father, Son, and Spirit overflowed into the creation of the world, it overflowed into the creation and salvation of our very souls. Even so, our love for each other, should overflow in bringing more people to Christ. Let us share this hope and this blessing with those around us and pray that the Lord of the harvest would bless our works. Second, as the temple of God, let us pursue holiness above all things. In this pursuit, we cannot rely on ourselves because just as the temple in the Old Testament was cleansed with the blood of the bulls, It could not cleanse itself. We must trust and humbly rely on the cleansing blood of Christ to sanctify us for his work of worship and be transformed by the renewing of our minds to present our bodies as living sacrifices. This is God's work, and he will bring it to pass, and he will bring it to completion. Third, as the army of God, let's join him in his work of multiplying the members of his household, Let's put on the whole armor of God. We're all in this battle. And one one time a, a man asked uh, how many of y'all put on your armor this morning? I was like, ooh. You know, I didn't I'm like, that's kind of a weird like Jesus Jew question, right? Like, but really, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. This is a blessing that is given to us because as Christians we are in this fight. Without putting on the armor, we cannot accomplish God's will in us. The armor that he gives us, equipped with prayer, enables us to fight sin in our lives and to conquer the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. So let us, even as our father in the faith, Abraham, grasped onto the promises of God and went, let us also do the same. Finally, as Paul says in Ephesians 3:16, let us be strengthened with the power through the Holy Spirit. If there is anything to do or to be based on what I have said today or based on what Paul says in Ephesians, it is only accomplished by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. In striving for unity, we must rely on the Spirit who binds us together in the bond of peace in pursuing holiness. We must trust the Spirit who bears fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self control in our lives. In making disciples, we must remember Jesus' commission that being His witnesses to the ends of the earth is first powered by waiting on His Spirit. Pray that these things will be on our hearts this week and that we will rely on the Holy Spirit to work in us here at Redeemer to be built into his holy temple and his household. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the work that you have accomplished in Christ, that you have applied to us through your Holy Spirit, Thank you for making us for adopting us sinners that we are into your household. Father, we are your sons. Let us never lose this. Let us never lose sight of this that you love us. Let us live lives that reflect who we already are in you and in Christ. Give us the strength to go forth. Give us wisdom. Give us patience. Give us humility to rely on your spirit to accomplish your work in the world and not our own. We pray that you will build your kingdom and that we would not build ours. In Christ's name.